ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to be back on the Mark Twitchell case again today. Hopefully this will be the last episode, but I make no promises because I, uh, like I said, did a crippling amount of research on it. I'd like to cite the source for that. That would be the Devil Cinema. That was the book that I got most of the information from. As well as scattered online sources, but seeing as most of them are news media, they don't deserve any credit. They can go fuck themselves. And on that note, this show may offend you at some point. Uh, I can be quite rude, I'm told. And if you don't like it, have sexual intercourse with yourself. Ha. And also I play advertisements during the show that are the creative property exclusively of Rockstar Games. I don't own them, nor do I stand to profit from the use of them. With that being said, we're going to start with some of them fake ads, and then we'll get straight into Mark Twitchell and how much of a fucking loser that sissy bitch is at, at nauseum, at length. BRB. You're in Vinewood, the capital of the world. You want to make it big, but you have seconds to make an impression. A retouched impression that lies about your age, weight, and height. You're in a town of liars and fantasists. Isn't it time your headshot showed you fit right in? In this town, it's vital to walk around with black and white 8x10s of yourself, looking like a catalog model or a softcore porn star. That's where I come in. My name is Lorenzo O'Houlihan. First, I take an old-fashioned photograph of you, and then I touch it up to get rid of your skin tags and the wrinkles from years of worry that you're useless and so is the personality you were born with. I help turn you into something Vinewood knows how to work with, a bland automaton with the personality of a dishcloth. I also offer casting couch training, so you'll know when and how to put out to get ahead. I also teach gaydar blocking, so the gay mafia will think you're one of them. I am Lorenzo O'Houlihan, dream maker. Contact me today. It's MMA. Don't miss the upcoming match of Brazil's Luis Cardoso versus Vice Beach's Troy Meatpacker. Half of them don't speak much English. The other are foreign. It's the noble Eastern art of eviscerating your opponent with a kidney punch while you're both wearing swimming trunks. MMA. It's a combination of skills, guts, wit, and the psychotic desire to give someone brain damage. Mixed martial arts, mixing kung fu, homoerotic wrestling, bloodlust, and merchandising. I want to see some blood, you pussies! Only on pay-per-view. All right, we're back. So if you remember last time, Twitchell was living an alternate life, if you will, with strangers on the internet while he was pretending to be Dexter Morgan, that that fucking loser from that TV show that a bunch of fucking weird people liked. I'm sorry. My ex liked that show. I didn't. Twitchell found having access to Renee's dark mind was impossibly riveting. Never before had he shared such thoughts with such vigor as if gorging himself on the darkest of chocolates. This true crime writer that I'm quoting from right now, he takes some liberties, not necessarily good ones. As the first few days of October passed by, he could barely resist spilling his own gruesome fantasies in return. But he maintained composure, at least for now, as if afraid of frightening his newest admirer. Twitchell thought it best to begin with a Dexter analogy, a passion he knew she already shared, and then blend the words with his life experience. Messaging Renee through Dexter Morgan's Facebook account, he went back to his rejection at the U.S. border and told her 
of its uh, of his reaction when the customs officer delivered the bad news. I fantasized about wrapping her to a table, collecting the blood slide, and then dismembering her vigorously, he wrote, before adding an LOL. And uh, as a light punctuation at the very end of the thought that he had just stated, Renee bathed in the dark passage, soaking in each sinister word as she contemplated what she would share to top it. She didn't hold back. She unveiled one of her most violent fantasies, one that was disturbing and deeply personal. I relate totally to the dark fantasies of wrapping that bitch up and cutting her into pieces. I have many dark thoughts about my ex-husband's current wife. Oh, God. That fucker couldn't wait four months for our divorce papers to dry, not even a whole year since we split, before he got married to a nasty, skeletor-looking skank with a rod in her spine. All I wanted, all I will still want to do, is cut her up and draw little circles with her blood. Little circles on her face, on the window, on the knife, just blood circles. Finger painting, but with only one color. Slowly watching the blood drip a bit, I would laugh. <laughs> Watch the line. The lines draw on the window and wait for the knife to dry so I could dip it in again and make more paint. Tiny little circles. Pretty much like that. The vivid imagery of her story struck deeply. Twitchell viewed her affect as smooth and romantic, like a piece of gothic literature full of torment, lost love, and gore. She sat on her story for five hours. Or he sat on it, rather. Then late in the evening on Thursday, October 2nd, Thoughts turning to the day ahead, he finally touched the keyboard. Swept up in the moment, he was descended into dark territory, exposing his elaborate insights on how to commit the perfect murder. He warned Renee that she was too close to the victim and would be easily caught. She needed a far stronger plan to dispose of her ex-husband's new wife. If you really want to make this happen and get away with it, prepare a kill room the same way Dex does. You fucking cuckold loser. Wall-to-wall plastic sheeting. Kidnap, said anorexic bitch. Sounds fairly simple and easy considering her small carriage and get her to the room. In the United States, stun guns are a cost-effective approach, followed by a sleeper hold. This tactic leaves no forensic evidence behind and renders your target unconscious quickly and silently. And that is not true, by the way. If, it, if your skin rubs, you leave forensic evidence, just whether or not they find it. Well, he's in jail. The method for securing the body on TV is theatrical, but impractical to say the least. Tethering is useless. Tie the body up with duct tape completely, feet together, arms to the body, hands wrapped, and then tether to prevent twisting. Make sure you are head to toe in disposable rain suit or something like that and that you have plenty of hefties for the pieces and the plastic sheeting when finished. Pulverize the jawbones and remove the teeth to avoid dental ID. Also remove the fingertips and incinerate them. And then pray that they're not a convicted felon so that they're not in the system. Fucking mouth-breathing idiot. Ideally, you would want to incinerate the entire body, but that requires exhaustive location planning and suitable containers, as well as fluid. Dude, you know how fucking hard it is to burn a body? Mother of gut. Neither do I. But it's fucking hard, from what I've read. Otherwise, you can just dump the bags loaded with rocks, Dexter-style, into a large body of water. Isn't Ohio fairly close to a Great Lake or something? Hmm. Finished with passing on his detailed suggestion, he called in a night and went to bed, having dreams of getting pounded in the ass by a fucking bull or something. He's a fucking weirdo. 
Gillies Tetralt had butterflies in his stomach as his first date with Sheena drew near. He still wasn't entirely sure how to get there and had to ask Sheena yet again for clarification. Her response, however, made it all quite clear. There's certainly no other driveways along our alley like this one, and a half-open car door is a dead giveaway. He printed out her directions in case he needed them. After work on Friday, he knew he would have time to rush home, slip on a nice shirt and a jacket, or his thin black one from Old Navy, in order to make it to her house on time. He didn't want to be late. Why, man? She'd be late to your date. <laughs> Across town, Twitchell, punk-ass, bitch-ass bitch, was preparing. He was spending Friday morning buying more duct tape, one new padlock, and disposable coveralls. The possibility that the evening would bring... Or the possibility of what the evening would bring seemed impossibly appealing. The afternoon passed by quickly. He stopped to pay rent on the garage for the film studio, a courtesy he did not extend to his own home lender. The mortgage on his St. Albert bungalow had gone unpaid since the signing of the deed. Linda Warren had a curiosity about her next-door neighbor. On the weekend, she spotted a crew making a movie in the garage. Several men she had never seen before had been joined by a man in a maroon car who stopped by more frequently. Their activities were unusual, but still explainable. Her suspicions had only been raised earlier when a large table was dragged out of the garage and into the sunlight. The metal surface had been polished vigorously. She had seen such a lovely table only once before, deep inside a medical examiner's office where autopsies were performed. Oh, God, I saw one of those once. Twitchell slipped into the garage undetected. The walls deadened the sounds of his laborious work. His Friday preparations stretching on for hours with a staple gun and scissor in hand. Tape was ripped, plastic sheeting laid out inch by inch, the ceiling was covered, staples holding the sheets in place, the walls were draped, the cement floor blanketed. Even the table was prepared, sheeting falling over top. Oh, sheet. A thin green bed sheet was tacked up too separating the two sides of the garage. He had made a dark sanctuary of which even his his fanboy boyfriend, Dexter, would be proud. The painted hockey mask sat nearby, close to the stun gun baton. A pair of handcuffs were at the ready. Joining the armory was a firearm. Keep in mind, it's Canada, so that's a, that's a feat. Twitchell tucked the handgun in close, making sure it was never far from his reach. With time to spare, he flipped open his laptop and checked his Dexter Morgan profile. His fans had no idea what he was really up to, which likely made him just a little bit harder. Status update was entered. Dexter is patiently waiting for the next victory uh, play date. You're a fucking loser, dude. Jesus Christ. Twitchell closed the laptop, slipped on the hoodie, and lay in wait. Time passed by in silence. A, br a breeze rattled the partially open bay door, but soon settled. The sky bruised purple, and he heard a vehicle rumble down the alley. Then the sharp sound of wheels on gravel. Headlights beamed onto the garage bay doors, vanished, and the engine shuddered cold. Fingers were clenched tight, gripping the stun baton. Outside, he heard shoes in the soil. A man was entering the property. A pause, as if to enjoy the brief moment of calm, and Twitchell rushed forward, racing across the kill room under the cloak of darkness. He approached his foolish arrival in full flight, drifting ever closer, 
like a stupid-ass crippled bird that was trying to harness the power of terror. So this guy Gills had been driving fast because he wanted to get some ass. But when he pulled into the driveway, parked the truck, and checked the time, 15 minutes after 7, he knew rushing hadn't helped a thing. Sheena had told him not to be late, and he already was, losing that good first impression. Yeah. Oopsies. Yellow leaves crunched underneath his shoes as he jumped out of the truck and ducked under one of the garage bay doors. Left open a bit, just like she said. His tardiness on his mind, Gills tried to hurry through the darkened garage as he headed straight towards the faint outline of the back door ahead of him. As he reached for the door handle, Gills was suddenly embraced from behind. He thought Sheena was playing a joke on him. But then something caught his eye. An arm, the arm that reached around him, was holding what looked to be a cattle prod. An arc of electricity cracked and echoed against his chest. Again and again and again. What the hell's going on? Gills cried out in pain. What the fuck? He spun around. He was terrified to see a tall man standing behind him, his face obscured by a black and gold hockey mask. The jaw had been cut away, revealing the stranger's mouth and tight lips. This was no ass-getting date. The masked intruder was holding the glowing shock device in his right hand, with the blue arc of his weapon glowing in the darkness. But the electrical pulse was more annoying than crippling, and it felt like he was getting swatted with an electronic bug zapper. Gills finally grabbed the man's arm and pushed it to the side and started to run, but the attacker cut him off and pulled out a gun. Get down on the ground! Put your head down, the attacker screamed, gesturing with the handgun. Gills thought he was going to die. Put your hands behind your back. The stranger's voice was deep and commanding. Don't move. He fell to the floor and tried to look up, but the stranger yelled at him repeatedly to keep his fucking head down. Next thing he knew, he had duct tape over his eyes. Gillies was blind, lying on the cold concrete, feeling helpless and panicking. Take whatever you want, he pled. Take my wallet. Anything else, just let me go. If you cooperate, this will only be a standard robbery. Gills didn't dare move. All he could hear was a jingling sound. Horrible thoughts came in flashes of terror behind his taped-up eyes. Nobody knows where I am. This man is going to rob me, abduct me, rape me, kill me. Who knows? The jingling continued. Oh, God, he's going to rape me. Oh, man. Gills made a split-second decision. In desperation, he decided to fight back. I'd rather die my way than this way. He ripped off the duct tape and jumped to his feet. I refuse to go down like this. It startled the stranger. Get back down on the ground. He swung the handgun toward him. Gills waited for the bullet. There was no time to react. His mind was racing. Grab the barrel of the gun. You can do this. In that instant, in a space occupying no more than a half second at time, although it felt so much longer, he saw the stranger's outstretched hand grasping the firearm, moving it closer to his head, aiming. Gills lunged, palm toward the enemy. His fingers touched the barrel. His eyes fluttered open in surprise. Gills realized the gun was fake. He felt the hard plastic in his hand, realizing with exhilaration the weapon weighed just half that the weight of a, of a real gun. It gave him newfound hope. He wasn't afraid of the gun anymore, and his confidence suddenly exploded in rage, adrenaline fueling a wild bout of courage. He could fight off his weaponless fraud of an opponent. Gills ripped the gun out of the stranger's hand. He clasped on tight and tried to break the gun, crush it, smash it in two... He spotted black handcuffs on the floor and picked him up. Put those down, the man shouted excitedly. But Gills ignored him. He tossed the fake gun into the corner and wrapped the handcuffs around his fist like a set of brass knuckles. Gills took a long look at his attacker, realizing the handcuffs wouldn't dent the stranger's mask. He discarded him and clenched his fist. The two collided. They wrestled. 
arms and hands ripping and grasping. Their feet jostled as they pushed and shoved each other in the scuffle, both trying to gain the upper hand. Gills clasped his hands tightly around his attacker when the man lunged forward and headbutted him in the face. The mask struck hard against his nose and his eyes, and he recoiled from stinging pain. The stranger sneered, because you're not cooperating, this is the way it has to be. The duo struggled and spun around several times in the near darkness, and the stranger threw a hard punch at Gill's left temple. But he was too high, uh, too high on adrenaline to feel its full impact. They continued struggling furiously, smashing from one end of the garage to the other, arms flailing, fingers pulling and tearing. Gills tried to rip the attacker's mask off, but the man kept dodging him. Gills lifted one leg and swung it as hard as he could at the groin of the masked attacker. See, that would have been my first move. But the man just ducked out of the way and kicked nothing but air. Stranger tried to kick him back. Gills kept punching the man in the chest, avoiding contact with the hard plastic mask. Then as they struggled, Gills felt some kind of pouch on the man's waist. He shuddered. His attacker could be armed with a knife, and Gills knew he had to escape quickly if the man had such a weapon on him. This brawl could end his life. Gills figured that if he let the attacker continue to hit him, he could slowly maneuver himself towards the bay door, each punch sending him closer to the exit. They rope a dope, bitch. The punches kept battering the left side of his head, but there seemed to be no method to the attack. It was unorganized, chaotic. He tried to focus on what he could see of the attacker's face, hoping to remember details later. Maybe he saw freckles, and he glanced again. He could have red hair. He was moving too fast for him to be sure, though. And the mask and hoodie covered nearly everything else. Gills stepped away, then took another baby step. The door was close. He pushed the man back, but his grasp held on tight, the stranger's fingers clawing into his jacket. Gills slipped his arms out, letting the jacket slide off in the grasp of the attacker. Freedom neared. Gills dropped to the floor and rolled under partially open garage door that was in front of him. He started crawling, palms pushing himself past the edge of the garage and down the driveway. He grabbed at soil and rocks. Out of breath and exhausted, he could barely keep going or even lift himself up. Maybe the stun baton had really knocked him out, he thought. All his energy seemed to be drained. Gil grasped for air, crawling feverishly through patches of dead grass and dirt. Behind him, the stranger was back on his feet. He ducked under the garage door and started walking towards his prey. Gills could hear him drawing closer, and he pushed himself forward again, fighting to keep moving, to find help, to find something. But the stranger was all upon him again, grabbing him by his ankles and pulling him hard. Gills struggled to hold him off, fingers digging and scratching in the ground. He reached for a rock, but just when the man pulled hard, the rock slipped out of his hand. He flailed his arms about uselessly as he was dragged all the way back to the garage. As the attacker attempted to raise the garage door high enough for both of them to slide under, he released his grip on Gills momentarily, giving him a second chance to escape. He pushed away and leapt to his feet, stumbling sideways and nearly crashing into an old maroon-colored fence. He steadied himself and bolted once again around the corner and down the alley, heart booming in his chest. As he staggered towards the crossroads where the alley meets the walking path, Gills spotted a young couple out for an evening stroll. He flagged him down, screaming, Help, he's trying to kill me. The couple looked down at him. He's trying to mug me, Gill said. Then his attacker emerged from out of the alley. That's him, Gills groaned, holding his stomach. He slowly rose to his feet. The couple looked on in terror at the approaching figure who looked something like he was out of a horror movie. His mask covering his face, he lumbered closer towards them. 
Oh, hey, friend, the stranger said cheerfully, trying to feign friendship, but the young couple wasn't buying it. Terrorized by the sight of a masked stranger, the woman took off down the path. Her boyfriend stayed behind momentarily before he also fled, leaving Gills on his own. But their presence had been enough to make the stranger skittish, and he retreated as well. Gills watched as everybody scattered. He was more than he was more angry than scared now and determined to return to the driveway to get his truck. He moved slowly, quietly. He placed footsteps silently on the alley pavement, looking all around for him, uh, wondering where his attacker had fled. As he neared his park truck, he could see under the partially open garage door. A pair of feet was pacing frantically back and forth. His jacket was still on the floor, but he wasn't going in there again to get it. Gills jumped into his vehicle and locked the door. He slammed the key into ignition, gave it a crank, and slammed the gas pedal to the floor. He was driving on adrenaline. He was nearing a major roadway when the whole experience finally hit him, and then his heart really started to pound. It was like getting hit in the face with a sledgehammer. The shock, the fear, the panic, everything started hurting, especially his ribs and the side of his face. He felt sick to his stomach, so he had to pull over. Gills pulled over down a side street, got out, dry heaved a little bit, grabbed a bottle of water, and poured some over his face and down the rest. He was exhausted. He laid down in his vehicle just for a minute. When he finally arrived home, he saw in his bathroom mirror that he had a huge welt forming on his head. His clothes were torn. He was hurt everywhere. He grabbed a bag of frozen vegetables out of the freezer, wrapped it in a towel, and placed it on his face. When he awoke a few hours later, it dawned on him to check the computer. He rushed over to his desk, started up the web browser, and logged on to Plenty of Fish. But Sheena was gone. All her correspondence with him had been deleted. Details of their dinner plans and movie plans were now gone. All of her flirty messages had disappeared along with all of his replies. He tried to find her profile, but it had vanished too. At Bravado, we're holding on to the dream. That dream is luxury. And a gas-guzzling luxury car created in a nation that's 95% condemned. We haven't forgotten what America wants. A car that's massively overpowered, has fold-down seats for BJs on the way home from work, and cruise control so you can text while driving back from the bar. Bravado. United we stand. Together we fall. American healthcare industry is in shambles, but you desperately need surgery to fix your broken tits. Why not outsource? Implant Outsource, the show that sends you to an exotic location to get plastic surgery. Everything else you buy is made in Asia. Why not get tits from Jakarta? Watch as Americans get permanent body modification done in a place that has no running water or trained doctors. This week on the show, see Melanie get voted off when her trout pal gets smoked. It's secondhand nips, lips, and hips. Only on Implant Outsource, Mondays on CNT. Okay, so Twitchell cringed every time now that he heard a phone call and spotted a police cruiser. Each passing day, however, confirmed that the incident had likely and remarkably gone unreported. He felt his confidence bloom. He wrote about it later as he expanded in his stupid-ass nerdy novel, SK Confessions. My fear subsided. No patrol car would come to take me away, bound in handcuffs to be brought up on assault charges, forever ending my serial killer career before it began. Bringing down my marriage with it when my wife finds out what I really am. Yeah, yeah, shut up. Deleting Sheena's dating profile minutes after the struggle had been a good idea as well. Just in the rare 
event that the police were ever called. Because Twitchell wasn't smart enough to realize that companies keep databases of your, your logs and records. Stupid asshole. But Twitchell was under the impression that Gills had received the threatening message he had written, warning him that he would hunt him down where he lives when he least expects it and finish what he started if he ever went to the police. But deleting Sheena's account minutes later had also erased that message too before Gills had a chance to read it. Twitchell's paperwork for a real firearm had not yet arrived. Joss had been his reference as he requested, and the legal papers had been signed, authorized, and approved by the police but still delayed somewhere in the mail. Twitchell could still not legally buy himself a gun. The fake firearm he had used was owned by a local movie prop company. Clearly, it didn't fool anybody. If he was to continue with his plan, he would need to change his tactics. On Sunday, October 5th, two days after her last contact with Twitchell, Renee sat at her computer in Ohio, cup of coffee in hand. What are you up to this weekend, she inquired. She had the whole day to herself, but her mind kept returning to Twitchell. She felt like he had awakened a part of her that had laid dormant for years. Stun gun. Hmm, that's a good idea, she told him. But I think when it came to cutting her up in little pieces, I would choke. She thought his plan would leave way too much forensic evidence behind, and she was definitely right. Where's all the blood going to go when it's time to put the plastic down? Renee viewed their discussion as intriguing, but upon reflection, she reminded him that an invisible line always separated her from the violence they envisioned together. She was never going to be a potential killer. That's what dark fantasies are for, she concluded, to fantasize. When Twitchell read Renee's message about stun gun batons, he must have chuckled to himself as he uh, retracted his stated method. He warned her that there were several unforeseen flaws. Batons and the like are ineffective and sloppy. It's because you bought one from Chinatown, dude. And in the rare event, the wildcard situation of the victim grabbing it from you sh should happen. Should it happen is not good. I'd go with a sturdy copper pipe. Lead is too heavy, and the copper finish allows you to tape the base for good grip. You can also put tape on lead, you fucking mouth breather. Two swift hard bonks. Bonks? Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, he's Canadian. Fucking asshole. Not the Canadian, my microphone stand. Two swift hands... Yeah, two swift bonks of the back of the head and out-cooled. Oh, sorry, bro. And if not out-cooled, then come in... I can't even... I'm not gonna... I'm not gonna beslander the Canadians with my bad accent. Sorry, Snow Mexico. And if not out-cold, eh, they come in handy for concise hits to the torso to win the individual and kneecap that... You can't... You'd have a better chance kneecapping with somebody with a lead pipe, Twitchell, you fucking idiot. A sleeper hold will finish the job. Yeah, my god. I bet he doesn't even know how to do a fucking sleeper hold. Tearing apart bone connections by hand is simply not done and too much work for anybody. Yeah, except for meat packers and butchers, you fucking lazy hack. A hunter's game processing kit comes with everything you need to cut the bones or cut the body into nice manageable pieces, including a handsaw that will likely go through bone like butter. Maybe frozen butter, but still. You're not supposed to hack through the bone, you fucking loser. My god. You're supposed to cut through the tendons. Or whatever the shit is in between the bones. I'm not a fucking doctor. As for what 
to do with the blood. That's easy, too. We assume she's laying down on the table with both her hands totally wrapped in duct tape. Free one arm and slit the wrist, allowing the vast majority of the blood to flow out of the wrist and into a container like a garbage can. <sighs> with a hefty bag in it. Yeah, hefty. I remember that from their last commercial, because nothing says stowing a body like hefty bags. The blood either gets dumped with the rest of the body or poured into the nearest, most convenient sewer drain. Yeah, your ex-girlfriends. After that, the body has barely any blood left and certainly wouldn't be enough to pool anywhere. You, sir, are a fucking... Mm, you're not as smart as you think you are. Renee, because she obviously was a stupid slut, called him an evil genius for his fantasy. Not so much, bitch. Ugh, the horribly awesome things we could accomplish together, she left. Yeah, what, like anal? Fuck you. I'm perfecting a few of them, but don't tell anybody, he replied. Flash forward. Investors huddled around the table of the, Ven Ven the Venture Alberta. All eyes fell to Randy Lennon as he walked in, and discussion returned to Express Entertainment, having spent a few months looking at Day Player's film proposal for Mark Twitchell. Randy was asked for his advice. I recommend everybody against investing in this. The whole concept bothered him. Another member pulled Randy aside with some uncomfortable news. At least one investor had already agreed to put money in. John Pinsent believed his investment was protected because he recently signed a contract, declared his funds to be held in trust, and used only for direct purposes of assisting an independent gap financer establish a line of credit. He planned on handing over a check at the end of October as per his agreement. It couldn't come sooner for Twitchell. He now had less than $200 in his business account. It was nearing 5 p.m. on Thursday, October 9th, when Twitchell found he had time to spare before his marriage counseling session on the West End. It was nearing 5 p.m. on Thursday, October 9th, when Twitchell found he had time to he had time to spare before his marriage counseling session on the West End. He strolled into a Canadian tire hardware store and scanned the aisles. Rows of auto parts stretched into sections devoted to camping, barbecues, gardening spots, uh, sports rather, and home repair. Finally, he rounded a corner and spotted what he was looking for. A father and his little girl were standing nearby, rummaging through a section of faucet sinks and the like. The girl, who was around five, had picked up a wooden handle of a toilet plunger and was holding it high like a Jedi with a lightsaber, striking a defensive pose. Normally, children irritated Twitchell, but watching this scene unfold softened his hostility a little bit. The girl blushed when she noticed that he was staring at her. He smiled to assure her that make-believe was okay, and she gave him a bashful grin in return. Twitchell found that moment endearing, and he thought of his own daughter who would be the girl's age in only a few short years. As the girl scampered away, her father's arms were filled with supplies. Twitchell turned his attention back to what he was looking for. In front of him was a pile of pipes. He wrapped his hands around two of them. He felt cold metal in his palms. At that point, he realized he was too stupid to identify what kind of metal each one was. Passing a $20 bill to the clerk as payment, he walked back to his car and drove off to his south side garage, dropping the items off before he had to meet Jess to discuss their marriage. He made a mental note that he had to pick up hockey tape later. He'd need a roll to, uh, he'd need at least a roll to deliver a much better grip 
man, you got the butterfingers or sweaty hands or something? Yeah, he probably has those nervous palms. Those I masturbate in public palms. <laughs> An hour and a half after buying metal pipes, Twitchell watched as his wife cried and the couple discussed their crumbling relationship with the therapist. Twitchell had mixed feelings about talking to a shrink who was operating out of a clinic in a neighborhood mall. Jesus. There was a lot going on in his life that he certainly wasn't going to talk about in front of Jess or to a professional, some of which he shared only in his stupid-ass book, SK Confessions. Twitchell's mind was also drifting back to his ex-girlfriend, Tracy. They had continued to chat online, and tomorrow they would finally reconnect during an afternoon rendezvous. That's French for meetup. Still, as he sat in his therapist's office, he found he was learning how his disagreements with his wife could turn into fights. A key concern clearly revolved around the issue of trust. Tell me, Jess begged him. Is Phil Porter a real person? Jesus, woman, you are just... You, you were a detective in the making. Yes, he assured her, nearly rolling his eyes as she brought up the editor once again. I'm getting annoyed for him. Jesus fucking Christ. You heard me talk to him. He's real. The couple left after 60 minutes with Twitchell shelling out $85 for the session. Having spent the last of his cash on pipes, he pulled out his business account bank card. His company funds had now dipped to only $60. Oof. They drove home in separate cars. Twitchell ret retreated to his basement office to check his computer. Tomorrow was another Friday, seven days since his last visitor fled the garage. Jess was under the impression he had another personal therapy appointment booked for Friday evening. Yeah, personal therapy with his dick, you know what I'm saying? Sitting in the basement far away from the prying eyes of his wife, he returned to PlentyOfFish.com and designed a new dating profile. He created a new woman with a new name, with new photos, a new email address was used. He liked coming up with names. Some of the online usernames he'd used over the years included some pretty lame shit that I'm not going to repeat. He was having fun. This weekend I've got all kinds of shit planned, he wrote to Renee on his Dexter Morgan fanboy fucking porno account. All week he had been writing Dexter status updates on how he was reviewing possible candidates, can contemplating selling his Vicks organs on the black market. Oh my god. Just kill yourself, dude. Kill yourself. As Friday neared, he simply stated, Dexter is crouching killer, nervous father. I wish Twitchell was fucking dead killer, absentee father. Just saying. Fan yes, I wish that. I don't give a shit. Fans of the show played right into it. You've been getting sloppy, a follower warned in reply. Rule number one, don't get caught. You guys are fucking nerds in the worst way. <sighs> Jesus Christ, I hate you. Dexter fans and Twitchell, you guys can eat my ass. Twitchell threw a roll of black hockey tape on the seat of his car and sped off towards the movie theater. He was early, but Tracy was waiting for him at their meeting place in a bookstore. He spotted her near a stack of novels as he walked inside. Yeah, walked in on her reading studs and spurs. <laughs> and with one look in her green eyes, he knew the attraction between them was still strong. <laughs> Their secret movie plans were just like old times in college. Flirting was the start of it. Bracing against a cold breeze, the pair hurried across the vast, nearly deserted parking lot into the South Edmonton Commons Cineplex Odeon? What the fuck is an Odeon? 
The theater had a huge blue and silver front entrance with a boulevard of naked trees and red lava rocks. It was Friday afternoon and the matinee theaters all looked empty. They would have their choice of what to see. Twitchell noticed one movie that looked interesting among the options on the display board. The film was called Quarantine, a psychological thriller just like his House of Cards project. And although it was fiction, it was shot like a documentary from the point of view of the cameraman, making the film appear like a recording of the real incident, which, fuck, man, that I'm glad that trend has started to pass. Fuck found footage shit. Fuck hand cam shit. I, uh, I get, sometimes I get violently motion sickness, and guess what? Every fucking time it's when one of those stupid movies is playing, like, uh, Section 9 or Section 13, whatever that stupid-ass movie was about the aliens that you couldn't even watch because the camera was jumping up and down like the guy had Parkinson's. Fuck that shit. The film's creators had previously released the Poughkeepsie Tapes, another stupid fucking film about a mass serial killer who documents his gruesome murders and dismemberments. Yeah, because that's so fucking original. Thank you. Quarantine also starred Jennifer Carpenter, who Twitchell knew for her role as playing Dexter's adopted sister. He rarely picked movies solely because of an actor or a filmmaker, but this one piqued his interest and he was looking it was looking very promising indeed. Tracy was fine with it too, incapable of making her own decisions. Twitchell stood in line for popcorn, spending extra to have a big bag slathered in real butter, as Tracy headed to the theater to grab the seats. He walked down the hall a few minutes later and peeked his head around the corner of Theater 8, where Tracy was already sitting in the back row with nobody nearby. He usually liked to sit near the middle in the audio sweet spot, but he didn't mind her choice at all. He sat down and the two of them made small talk. The tension was palpable. I was an idiot in school, Twitchell blurted as the conversation lurched into the topic of their on-again, off-again romance. I know I've said it before, but I've been learning lately how vital it is to, uh, wait, I've been learning lately how vital it is to can the bullshit and face yourself with brutal honesty. And he was right. Tracy had heard this speech before and she'd likely hear it again. She had trouble trusting him, but he had caught her in a weak moment. Separated from her husband and her current relationship souring in recent days, she was listening intently. Twitchell was a magnet, no matter how much Tracy logically thought of of the futility of a relationship with him, she found herself being drawn closer. Their relationship had always been intense and at times even exciting. He tried to bring up the topic of his wife, but Twitchell didn't want to talk about it. Tracy was left with a distinct impression that he was basically separated. He kept going over past mistakes, telling Tracy that he was just a teenager when they dated and how he had lied because he wanted to impress her. He thought she was his soul mate. Their conversation was cut off as the theater lights dimmed and the big screen came alive with sounds and colors. Twitchell and Tracy sat in and, or settled in and started watching the movie. She fingered his ass. She had to have fingered him. Jennifer Carpenter appeared on screen as a bubbly TV reporter assigned to shadow a firefighter crew with her cameraman. They entered an apartment building infected with a virus similar to rabies, and the authorities locked them all inside to prevent the threat from escaping. Not long before a police officer is bitten by a frenzied, infected resident, 
her bite peeling off the skin. An old lady foaming at the mouth is shot multiple times and an infected rat rushes towards the cameraman and he curb stomps it hard. The rat's guts spill out of its asshole and mouth as if he's pressing down on a tube of toothpaste. Because my, my rolls of toothpaste look like rats with explosions coming out of their ass. Twitchell took his eyes off the screen and looked to his left at Tracy, the woman he once loved so deeply. She liked to cover her eyes during the grotesque parts in a way that he thought was adorable. Her hair draped the sides of her face, and it took a moment before she finally sensed that he was staring at her. She met his gaze. He felt a lump in his throat. She flirted back with a tiny smile. He took a chance and leaned in. She felt his hand on her arm, and they began to kiss. Gross. The beam of the projector cut above, cut above over their heads, and the light struck the screen and reflected back on their faces in a throbbing contrast of light and dark. The contours of her hips pressed against the stadium seat, edging closer to him. Blood scra- sprayed across the screen as she shifted her weight near. He could feel her hot breath, his lips once split and healed years ago and a soft line of pink tissue pressed hard against Tracy's. The killing on screen had continued at a steady pace. The cameraman was now fighting off a crazed infected woman by smashing his camera into her head, the shot giving his direct viewpoint of the assault. She falls to the floor, but he doesn't stop, using the greater force with each, each strike. Blood pours down her face as he, or as she cowers from the attack. He delivers another blow, twisting her head and a few more in quick succession. The cameraman finally calms down, his grunting easing as he stares below at her lifeless corpse. Twitchell barely paid attention as the uh, slaying played out in the darkened theater. In the back row, his kissing Tracy had progressed to making out. He felt it was real passion, and he was really letting go. As As the bodies piled up on screen, their passion rose even higher. Whenever they heard a loud, shrill scream, they'd pause a moment, smile, and then start making out once again. He was in the, on the brink of falling in love with her all over again. They put their passion on pause, only to catch the end of the film. Watching Jennifer Carpenter, she's dragged to her death. The screen fades to black. Tracy thought the movie was horrible and hated watching such violence. Twitchell had hoped the movie would inspire his own filmmaking, but he hadn't, hadn't seen enough of it to decide what he thought of it. Tracy wanted to leave. As they exited the theater, Twitchell imagined she was all torn up about her two relationships, being mistreated and needing reassurance that this time he was serious about her. She could have been thinking about all of this, but the real reason she was in such a rush to be closer to home is that she had two little mouths to feed. Tracy loved her dogs. They had to be fed and given their medication at five and six each day. And with the long drive back to her house, she had to leave now. As they reached their car, Twitchell leaned in for a final kiss goodbye. There was no doubt in Tracy's mind they had crossed the line in that theater. She was confused and excited about what it meant, and it lingered on her mind all afternoon. Twitchell wasn't worried about getting caught. He realized his marriage to Jess was just about over. But he wasn't ready to face it just yet. He unlocked his car, swung the door open, settled in the old gray fabric hugging his ass. Tracy drove south while Twitchell headed north, but instead of driving home to St. Albert, he decided to stop by his film set. He had that big idea in his head again. Tonight, it was going to happen. He just needed a, a bite to eat first. 
You want your kids to be safe, so you give them a mobile phone. What are they going to do when they get attacked? Throw it at someone? Why not force the state to keep us all protected by arming everybody? The senile old lady in her home, the three-year-old on the playground, the priest in his church. We think everybody should carry weapons at all times. That way, nobody gets hurt. It's a proven fact. Where there's more guns, there are less shootings. Vote yes on Proposition 45. Mandatory concealed carry for everybody. The nuclear deterrent won the Cold War. Let's use the same logic and win the war on crime. Proposition 45. Teach your kids to protect themselves. Available in all good bookstores now. Chains of Intimacy by Terry Bolin. You always criticize guys for looking at porno. This is different. This is erotic literature. I worked hard to be taken seriously as a woman in a man's world. Now I've realized it was all nonsense. And all I really wanted was a rich pervert. It's time to free yourself from convention by doing exactly what everyone else is doing. Reading drivel. And if you enjoy Chains of Intimacy, pick up the other books in the series. The You Bend of intimacy and the plug of intimacy. I'm a housewife. God, I'd love for a dashing billionaire to buy me diamonds and piss on me. Chains of Intimacy by Terry Bolin. Available in all good bookstores now. All right, so let's get to this murder. In his jeans and a hoodie with a military blade secured to his hip, Twitchell checked his email while waiting in the garage. He was standing by the back door, his laptop placed on a little wooden table in front of him, as he anxiously flicked through the messages. He had completed repairing sections of the plastic sheet that fell down during his tussle on Friday. Now, as far as he knew, the kill room was perfectly prepped. His stupid-ass mask lay nearby, two steel pipes were beside the table. Both had been wrapped in hockey tape. His fake handgun rested near the edge of the table. Twitchell's useless stun gun baton had been relegated to the back shelf. And a green bedsheet remained tacked to the ceiling, separating the plastic-wrapped section from the other side, where the bay door was open slightly, inviting, to his, inviting his visitor to enter. He was go going over in his head all the things he was going to say, but found himself easily distracted. A beam of sunlight caught his eye. It streamed in through a hole in one of the bay doors, piercing the clear plastic, scattering rainbows like a prism across the room. He heard traffic outside. His eyes darted under the partially open door. A red Mazda 3 slowed as it passed the garage, then kept moving. Twitchell was nervous. He checked his watch. Things were moving forward nearly half an hour earlier than expected. His adrenaline soared. He reached for the switch and... Flicked off the lights, darkness fell, and Twitchell lay in silence. Blood rushed through his veins, his fingers quivering. A moment later, he could hear a car, car come back and pull into the driveway. Headlights beamed through the hole he had just noticed. A shaft of twirling light cut through the darkness. The engine stopped and the light vanished. A man approached, ducking his head under the door, his clothes rustling from the movement. He took a few steps inside the dark garage, then stopped, seeming to notice seeming to notice the garage interior, the black plastic covering the windows. Hello, he called out. Twitchell froze, nearly vibrating with anticipation, hidden from view behind a hanging bedsheet. Twitchell cringed, not sure what to do when the man refused to move farther inside. Seconds passed. 
Twitchell held his breath, but his visitor remained still. He realized the man must have spotted him when he initially drove by. Twitchell had to think fast. Hello, he called back, cringing again. Oh, hold on just a sec. He turned the lights on and a yellow glow filled the room. Twitchell peered around the sheet and there he stood. Johnny Altinger, wearing glasses. He was thin and tall, staring right back at him. Twitchell launched into an improvised routine. Hey, I'm Mark, he said cheerfully. I'm a filmmaker. I'm, I'm dressing like this. I'm dressing this to look like a set. He motioned to the plastic sheeting covering his metal table, ceiling, floor, and walls. Johnny just stared at him, a bit confused by what he was seeing. Twitchell kept going, acting on the assumption that they both knew about the date. After all, Jen's email had mentioned that a man may be in the garage using it as a workshop. He kept his jolly mood elevated as he tried to dry out an unexpected conversation. You see this here? Twitchell pointed to the wooden table and reached to a prop firearm. He pulled the magazine out and showed Johnny how it was full of plastic pebbles, a pellet gun. Johnny took a closer look. I was the guy that made that Star Wars fan film, Twitchell blurted. He thought back to the television news coverage the project had received. Have you heard of it? No, said Johnny. Seeing that their conversation wasn't going anywhere, Twitchell tried to wrap it up quick. Listen, Jen's not back yet. She's on a short trip with her friends. She should be back by in a bit, maybe ten minutes. Johnny nodded. I'll come back. He jumped in his car and drove off. Twitchell took a deep breath, returning to his laptop as a distraction from his racing mind. He wasn't sure how he was going to do this, but before... He could think of a clear plan. Johnny was already pulling into the driveway again, parking in the same spot and ducking under the door. In a panic, Twitchell reached for his cell phone and pretended to be on a call. Yeah, okay, I'll let him know. Bye. Johnny was standing in the garage again, looking at Twitchell. Oh, hey, Twitchell smiled. I just got off the phone with her. She said she's stuck in traffic and won't be back for at least half an hour. You want to stick around or come back? Or Johnny was already turning for the door. Nah. I'll leave. He pulled his own phone out and started dialing as he opened the door. Twitchell watched him drive off. He didn't know what to do next. Johnny talked fast into his cell phone, his other hand juggling the steering wheel and gear shift as he cruised along. The freeway... He was taking the freeway back to his condo. Dale listened in on the other side. Hey, I just left, Johnny said. She wasn't there, but I met a guy in the garage. What? Dale thought it sounded a little odd. Yeah, the guy was making a movie and showed me a replica gun. Johnny was the type of guy who wanted to keep it brief. He was using a pay-as-you-go cell phone, which had very little credit on it. I'll give you a shout a little later when I get home. Back at the condo, Johnny collapsed on his couch, frustrated by the experience. He flipped open his laptop and typed out a message to his date. About 20 minutes later, Jen wrote him back, apologizing for the delay and saying she was now at her house, but it was up to him whether he wanted to come back tonight or postpone their date for another night. Johnny read it, thought a moment, and decided he didn't want to waste any more of the evening. So he responded, Sweetie, sweetie, I'm coming for that booty. He knew Dale would want to know about this, so he uh, fired off an email. She's home now and I'm heading over again. He, he, he said. Uh, and then he hit send, slipped on his jacket, and headed for the door, ecstatic that after all this trouble, his Friday night date might still actually happen. For the third time this evening, the red Mazda crept slowly down the alley. There was a stillness in the air. Rolling into the driveway, Johnny saw the garage door remain somewhat open for him to crawl under. He pulled a bag off the car seat, filled with the things he'd need if he was spending the night. And he stuck his keys in his pocket. A smile lit up across his face and he took a deep breath in, preparing to finally meet Jen. As he rose from under the garage door, however, he noticed that Twitchell was, st was still standing 
nearby with a strange expression on his face. Johnny gave the filmmaker a bit of a nod, acknowledging that they had met before as he searched for words to explain his third visit to the property that evening. I guess I'm just a glutton for punishment. Twitchell looked at Johnny, thinking guys like him redefined what it meant what it means to put too much as far as trust in a first impression, but he kept such callous thoughts to himself. Instead, he just met the visitor's gaze, heart booming in his chest, and smiled to himself because Johnny really was indeed a glutton for punishment. <sighs> this fucker. Fuck boy. Jess checked the clock. It was nearly 10 p.m. Her husband should have been home from his Friday night therapy session four hours ago. The appointment had been written down in black pen on the cartoon bunny calendar she kept tacked up on the wall beside the kitchen table. Mark's appointment. The usual start time was 7 p.m. She picked up her phone and dialed his cell. Twitchell's phone was on vibrate, and he pulled it out of his pocket after a moment or two. Hey, what's up? Twitchell had call display and was trying to sound cheerful. Not much. Where are you? I'm just leaving the gym, y'all. No, the gym is closed. The gym closes at 9. What are you talking about? It closes at 10. The big gym by our place? No, my gym. I thought you canceled that membership a month ago. He explained to Jess that his membership at the gym near their old rented townhouse was still active. I procrastinated and changed over my membership a few weeks ago, but I still have a couple weeks this month that are paid for. So I figured I'd take advantage of it since it takes an hour to cross town anyway. She thought for a moment, okay, well, listen, on your way home, can you uh, pick up a case of ready-made baby formula at Shoppers? Uh, yes, we'll do anything else. Twitchell cringed and hoped she wouldn't ask him to get her a latte or some dumb shit from Starbucks or some other inconvenient errand. No, but I'll probably be in bed by the time you get here, so I'm so tired from not doing anything. I'll see you tomorrow, then. Okay, bye. She hung up the phone and checked on Chloe. In the little room next to her main bedroom, her baby was asleep under the crescent moon nightlight. Her crib was sturdy oak. There were pictures of cartoon giraffes stuck beside it. Across her room, a stuffed tiger was perched on a dresser drawer. Below, on the gray carpet, a bright yellow plastic bucket was adorned with a smiley face, as if to say, Don't worry. Be happy. We asked people, why did you move to the Grand Sonora Desert? I moved for the arid climate. I really wanted a safe environment for my children. I moved for the math. It's not a mirage. It's a real trailer park. Imagine your new dream home in the Grand Sonora Desert. Imagine life in a place devoid of it. A place where you can be alone, go on hikes, and die of sunstroke. It's a place too boring for plants. It's the Grand Sonora Desert. Come live where there's nothing there. When someone at the bank knew your name, when they were part of the community, we're Blaine County Savings Bank. We're not like big city banks. First off, we don't lend money to foreigners. We're about a simpler time. If we get into trouble, we're sure folks will rally around us, just like in the movies. If you need a loan to buy a new tractor, combine, meth lab, or want to borrow money against future crop yields or your land, come in and ask for Janice. Blaine County Savings Bank, your hometown bank. Driving in a car that had become a mess of papers and bags, Twitchell was thinking about his evening as he pulled up to the store. The parking lot was nearly deserted and most of the store lights were off. 
He knew his wife was going to be pissed. He was too late. It was past midnight. The store had closed. And he had failed Jess yet again. He decided that he could avoid her wrath if he awoke early and rushed off to the store before Jess and the baby woke up. He cruised home on a long solo drive back north to St. Albert. When he got out of the car, he felt a blast of frigid night air. He pulled his duffel bag out of the car and swung it over his shoulder. He opened the door to his house slowly and quietly, trying not to stir Jess or Chloe away as he tiptoed down the flight of stairs in the basement. The room was littered with dirty clothes, boxes, and junk strewn over the blue carpet. In the corner, he had his own mattress and box spring set draped in red plaid sheets adjacent to his computer desk. Twitchell was exhausted and decided to take a shower. The basement had its own in uh, which he had been using since he started sleeping down there. He jumped in, showered, and dried his balls off. It had been a long fucking day. But before he returned to sleep, he decided to do some laundry. He dumped out his clothes from his duffel bag into the washer, washed his socks, pants, and shirt, as well as one of his newest purchases, a dark green hoodie. He threw his sneakers into the wash, too because all of the items were covered in blood. So, Johnny's friends had already, they had noticed that he was missing, because a lot of his friends were from work. Um, they couldn't they couldn't get a hold of him anywhere. They called his phone. It rang five or six times. Finally, the, the line was answered uh, by his voicemail, and uh, they, they kind of gave up in defeat, they tried to get into his patio door and it was locked. But he, uh, his one of his really good friends, Dale, didn't ever really give up on him despite all the weird shit that's going to happen, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, so the next day, Twitchell had overslept, of course, because he's a fucking selfish cow. Jess and Chloe had already started their day by the time he awoke from his slumber. Jess spotted her husband as he trudged up the stairs. Where's the fucking baby formula? Oh, sorry, he said, trying to wake up. When I went there last night, they were all out of stock. He told her he didn't mind jumping in the car and getting some now, he could tell. She wasn't impressed. He drove to the store, returned, and the three of them had noodles for lunch. Oh, poverty noodles, huh? Jess was free to run a few errands before they dropped off the baby at Twitchell's parents' house. Finally, there was some free time for the two of them to have sex with each other without the responsibility of caring for an annoying-ass baby. That evening, Jess and Twitchell decided to drive to Bourbon Street, a wing of the West Edmonton Mall decorated to look like the famous French Quarter in New Orleans. After dinner, at one of the Strip's loud restaurants, the couple headed to a comedy show a few doors down. They settled in at one of the blacktop tables, staring at a stage with a fake city skyline. Twitchell found himself in a flurry of conflicting, conflicting thoughts. But as he sat there, looking at the main act, rip one-liners and get the crowd riled up, he saw his wife experience a moment of happiness. She had no idea what was going on in his life, nor a clue about what he'd been doing with his Fridays. He wanted that facade to continue. So he began to join in the merriment, first with Snickers and soon with howls of laughter. With every joke the comedian told, Twitchell laughed a little bit louder. Soon he was roaring, his mouth wide open and his tongue swinging back and forth like he was special between his teeth. The couple shared a lot of laughs that night. Actually, in fact, Jess looked at her husband in amusement and assumed he was having a blast. For the first time in a long while, he seemed to be in a good mood and his easygoing self again. Over the weekend, she saw how her husband had been, had even worn his green hoodie, fresh out of the dryer, smelling great, still looking new. On Sunday afternoon, Twitchell 
and Jess picked up Chloe while dropping by to have Thanksgiving dinner with his parents, Norm and Mary, at their house. They arrived at 4 p.m. and enjoyed plates of wonderful food. He would get a second big meal the following day when he went to the in-law's house, but Twitchell wasn't a fan of the traditional turkey. He's a fucking douchebag. He found the meat too dry and stringy. Turkey's not stringy, you fucking cunt. When he and Jess returned to St. Albert with Chloe three hours later, the jovial mood had disappeared. Twitchell suddenly became spooked and jumped when they arrived at the door. It's not locked, he said, pushing it over. Twitchell looked over at Jess, who was usually quite good at remembering to lock it. She thought she could have forgotten, but was pretty sure she didn't. Maybe somebody tried to break in. He entered the house first and looked around as quietly as possible. Jess and Chloe waited outside. He quickly scanned each room, looking for any signs of an intruder, and seeing none, he made sure that nothing had been stolen. Everything was fine. He walked back to the door, and the incident passed as nothing but a sudden rush of paranoia. When he finally had a chance to relax, Twitchell reflected on the past days of his life. His Friday afternoon movie date with Tracy, followed by the experience in the garage, his weekend of suburban get-togethers, and he couldn't resist returning to the internet and dropping major clues about what he had been up to. Renee found herself treated to an ambiguous message describing how busy his weekend had been with a double helping of Thanksgiving meals. I've also had something else keeping me busy, he wrote, tee-hee, but I'm really concerned about telling anybody because of the implications. Suffice it to say, I crossed the line on Friday, and I liked it. She was struck by this odd choice of words and demanded an explanation. You wouldn't have brought it up unless you needed somebody to confide it in, she wrote, so spill it, bitch. He asked for her phone number, and she passed it along like a naive little girl. It was as if Twitchell was looking for somebody to unload on, and tell secrets to. Over the course of a late September and the first weeks of October, he'd also returned to the SK confession writing and was and written about how having a child could be a source of great comfort in this area, which I'm not going to read because he's a fucking cuck. What he was up to required discretion, a level of privacy to block unwanted attention. Renee was a stranger on the other side of North America, and he thought talking to her could be comforting. Cheers and good health to all you care about, he replied to the message she sent with her phone number. He settled on plans to finally reveal to her what he'd been up to in a matter of days. <laughs> ring, ring, ring. Hi, this is Renee. Oh, no. Uh, all right, so for John, ooh, for Johnny's friends, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Monday had begun with hope under threat. He had now been missing for three days. But, as if hearing their growing calls of concern, he finally reached out during a morning binge of internet activity. Willie was the first to hear from him at 8.42. His friend and co-worker had finally replied to his offline MSN message. Hey man, Johnny wrote in an email. No worries on my end, the girl and I hit it off big time. I know it's only been a few days, but I'm falling hard for her and she feels the same way. Johnny explained how he was planning to leave on a tropical vacation with his new girlfriend and she was footing the bill. Never done anything so spontaneous and it would be a great experience to get in before I kicked the bucket. Ten minutes later, Johnny created an out-of-office message that automatically sent emails to his friends, bragging about the extraordinary woman named Jen he had met, who was taking him to Costa Rica for a few months. An email of resignation was quickly sent to his boss. Thank you for the opportunity, Johnny wrote in conclusion, and rest assured I would not be leaving unless the new path I've chosen was truly life-altering. His Facebook page also lit up with activity. In his first post in nearly a month, he writes John Altinger's taking off to the Caribbean for a few months. See y'all when I get back. 
he changed his relationship status to in a relationship. Some of his friends were thrilled to hear it. Have fun. Take lots of pictures, replied one friend. For a couple months, another asked. What a tough life. <laughs> yeah, he's dead, asshole. How do you feel now? And as if to prove that he was finished with online dating, now that he'd found uh, his amazing woman, Johnny Altinger's Plenty of Fish account was deleted the same morning. Dale received the same email as everybody else, which added to his suspicions. He doubted Johnny would leave the country without calling his best friend to make arrangements for his, his motorcycle to be covered up and looked after. Besides, Johnny was more likely to go to Germany to visit a car factory than take a Caribbean holiday. He hated the heat. Dale typed a reply. Who's going to pick up... Who's going to pick your brother up at the airport? It was a lie to test what Johnny's response would be, but the question remained unanswered. Dale finally had enough of the continuing strange activity, but when he tried to file a missing persons report, an officer told him to eat shit. A middle-aged single man running off on a wild romantic getaway with some woman. The officer didn't think it sounded like a crime had been committed at all. Someone called the guy goddamn lucky. Actually, and it would be a waste of police resources to launch an investigation. Yeah, what are you talking about? Yeah, they fucked up on this case. Deborah Teichrobe had thought, hadn't thought of Johnny in a while, but reading over his email about a tropical vacation brought back memories of how she'd rejected his romantic intentions. The Johnny she knew and cared about didn't do anything on a whim. He planned trips months in advance. Running off on a whirlwind romance took her by surprise. But maybe he had changed. Sitting at her computer, Deborah thought about responding, but didn't know what to tell him. She found it odd that he had not called her Sunshine the way he did when he'd written to her so many times before. The tone of his email was so formal, as if all his personality had been stripped away. She considered telling him to be careful on his trip, but then she turned away from the keyboard and decided just to leave it alone. With their history, she knew it was not her place to question his relationship decisions. Later on, Deborah noticed Johnny signed into MSN Messenger. His new status update on the chat service confirmed how happy he had become. Words displayed, besides a little icon in his name, told of a life on holiday, a life of bliss. She could almost imagine the palm trees he was seeing, nearly taste the cocktails of coconut and lime. I've got a one-way ticket to heaven, Johnny had written of his trip, and I'm never coming back. Dark. So a lit match tumbled out of Twitchell's hand and dropped free fall into an oil drum. The flames ignited in an explosion that flashed and burst orange and yellow, shooting flames up from the sky. The air smelled of burning gasoline as light smoke billowed, carried off by the wind. Twitchell did not detect this expanding odor. He had no sense of smell. He simply stood back, watching the contents of the barrel slowly burn. He had spent a few hours loading up the barrel from his garage film studio into the back of his car. Then he drove it across town to his parents' house, where he planted it in the middle of their backyard. Nearby, a grouping of full garbage bags had been piled up, each one twisted tight and sealed with duct tape. Twitchell had soaked everything in the barrel in a splashing of gas from a jerry can. As he'd hoped, his parents weren't home. So, he had the whole place to himself. The yard had a single sidewalk leading from the house to the detached garage and parked RV. Sandwiched in between was a large pad of grass, now dying as winter approached. With a blue spruce tree off in the corner and a clothesline cutting across the open expanse, neighbors had built high fences on both sides, closing off his parents' yard from prying eyes. 
The burn lasted only a few minutes and then died down as the fuel burned off. Twitchell might have been smarter to mix some oil in with the gasoline to make it burn a little longer, or if you really want to get creative, mix the gasoline with styrofoam and make fucking napalm, because that shit never goes out. But he was a city boy, and some things can't be learned on the internet. He peeked his head over the lip of the drum to look inside. Most of the plastic from the garbage bags had melted away, but the contents were still smoldering. The fire was giving off such little heat that he couldn't have cooked a hot dog if he tried. He reached for the jerry can and poured a bit more gas into a coffee cup. He then poured the cup with his arm outstretched, uh, twisting his face away from the drum, and a whoosh of flames erupted as the cup emptied, but again the blaze died out quickly. He tried two more times with the same result. The barrel contents weren't continuing to burn once the fuel was spent. As I said, it might be difficult to burn a body. A siren whined in the distance and Twitchell froze. He scanned for signs of nosy neighbors, but he couldn't see a single window that had a view of the backyard. Then he spotted the dead giveaway drifting sideways. Somebody must have seen the clouds of black and gray and called the fire department. The truck's siren howled as it approached, bearing down closer on his parents' home. Twitchell ran over to the house and grabbed the garden hose rolled up near the barbecue. He turned the tap and doused the barrel in cold water. The steel drum hissed as the steam spat off the hot surface. The paint had peeled off the bottom of the drum and exposed the raw material. The rest of the drum had turned to very light pink. The enameled paint transformed by the fire. But the wail of the fire truck's siren stopped as the blaze was extinguished. The truck never appeared. Twitchell thought it could have been a massive coincidence, but it turned out the fire truck had been heading to a call a few blocks away. It was a sufficient scare to put Twitchell off his mission. At this pace, it would take all week to burn everything he wanted destroyed, so he pulled out a roll of garbage bags, rebagged the charred barrel contents, and loaded everything into his car, drive it back to the film studio for another day. Film studio, sorry. Another plan, another day. As Twitchell's dealings with the barrels continued, his messy car became a fucking issue. One day, Jess was running late for an appointment, and she jumped into her husband's Grand Am to move it out of the driveway so she could get her own car out. She was overcome by the strong odor of gasoline and saw the car was messier than usual. In the back, there were a pair of coveralls, similar to what somebody would wear... Uh, somebody would wear to cover their whole body with spray painting, or booth painting. She was about to start the engine when her husband came flying out of the house, hustling towards her, looking quite concerned. She knew that he didn't like her touching his shit, but his reaction this time was certainly on the heightened level. What the fuck are you doing? He asked excitedly. I needed to move your car to get you to get out. She motioned to her car blocked in front of him. Why does it smell like gas? I was filling up a jerry can to put in the trunk as a precaution, and I spilled some. Yeah, okay. But we already have a can of gas, Jess said, reminding him that they'd bought one recently for the lawnmower. Well, this is another one. Aren't lawnmowers two strokes? Well, this is another one. She was late, and it was turning into one of their old fights that began with bickering over nothing, so she fucking dropped it. That's right. Silence. Well, okay, she sighed and took off down the road. It was probably for the best that Twitchell had no sense of smell, because anybody close to the burning oil drum would have noticed a very distinct smell. Yeah, the, the, the smell of, that smell is terrible. Not that I would know. When the police discovered the burning barrel in the garage weeks later, it, or the burned, burning, the burning barrel, yeah, okay, it offered solid clues as to what Twitchell had been doing in his parents' backyard. Opening the barrel revealed a wet paper towels, 
and pieces of duct tape all stuck together. Black ash was scattered throughout. And when the barrel was tipped over, the contents spilled out in clumps like coal. There were bits of burnt cleaning sponge, metal rivets, a round piece of metal, possibly a ring. The last piece of ash had a thin metal strip as long as a pencil before curving at one end. Police officers looked closely, and it they came to the same conclusion, and that was that it was the arm off a pair of somebody's eyeglasses. Anxiety, depression, trauma. Don't depend on pills. Find a permanent solution, a transorbital solution, in just 20 minutes. Originally pushed underground as an alternative therapy, the lobotomy is a safe, fast procedure that snips a couple of troublesome nerve endings in your brain. Afterwards, you'll be completely brain dead, like everyone else in the state. Perfect for consuming our culture-free lifestyle. Just as there's a permanent surgical solution for solving that hunger in your stomach, there's a surgical solution that solves the anxiety and hunger for answers in your brain. The San Andreas Lobotomy. I'm Don of Don's Country Store, where you want to stop shop for night crawlers, stink bait, animal calls, fishing license, deer way station, mashed liquor, rocking chairs and shotguns, fireworks, Berlin's world famous pies, Civil War memorabilia, reading material, castor oil, VHS tapes, and the newest fax and telex machines. We also offer hog feed, chicken feed, and Merlin's Harmony Grits. We have patriotic items, too. We are the center of a thriving community. Stop by our city spell. Don's Country Store. It would, it would appear that I misjudged the amount of time that I had left for this episode yet again. So it will definitely be done on the fourth episode, I promise you that. And I'll be back sooner rather than later to get that recorded for you guys. Alright, and then real quick, we're just going to go over some stats here, because that is what I do, and I stick to tradition, if nothing else. Alright, top ten countries. United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, Germany, New Zealand, Sudan, Poland, Pakistan. Pakistan? Interesting. And Iceland. It's interesting that you can see the troop movements based on who's following me <laughs> and where they listen. Anyway, uh, so cities, Hogue, Ohio, Atlanta, Georgia, Columbus, Ohio, Centennial, Colorado, uh, Chicago, Illinois, Houston, Texas, Manhattan, New York, Lake Stevens, Washington, Alhambra, Arizona, and Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you guys very much for tuning in. I promise I will be done singing the praises of that douchebag Mark Twitchell in the next episode with the court case and murder investigation wrap-up. And then uh, I have a pile of suggestions I've yet to touch, and maybe we'll get to those after this, maybe not. I make no promises other than I will get to them eventually. Speaking of getting to things eventually, if you'd like to get a hold of me, please do so by going to anthologyofhorror.com, and from there you can link to my Instagram, which is instagram.com slash dukelandis17. That's probably the best way of getting a hold of me. Uh, you can also go to the Patreon, which should be linked. Uh, the Patreon's going to be re revamped here pretty soon. Revamped and reworked, because uh, I understand there's really no incentive to join it other than supporting the show, which is appreciated. But I'm going to start probably releasing the Revisionist Histories on the Patreon, and only the Patreon. If you guys think that's a good idea, or if you even like the Revisionist History, can you let me know? Because uh, I have had mixed reviews. Some people think they're fucking hilarious, and other people think I am the most obnoxious fucker in the world when I do them, so suck it. But 
there was something I wanted to share with you that I thought was pretty cool, and this will be the last thing I share with you. Not ever, but for today. Um, where is it, fucking asshole? God damn it. Find it, but essentially what it said is I was, uh... I was dicking around on the internet more so than normal, and I I got a bug up my ass about reading the reviews to the show, which I normally don't do, because, uh, you know, people, when they're hiding behind a computer screen, become extremely tough. And I've just found it's a usually pretty negative experience, so I don't do it more often than not. But I was just looking up to see, like, what websites ran the name of the show, so on and so forth. And there was some website that, uh, out of, they claimed that out of two million 300,000-something podcasts, this show, and you guys, by extension, are one of the top 1% creators, which uh, I actually kind of believe. So, thank you for that. Uh, That'll be it. This is Mark Twitchell, Part 3, and once again, we will conclude with Part 4, next episode release. Thank you all for tuning in. Until next time, stay spooky, motherfuckers. (laughs) 